Hello, this is Packy McCormick, and you are listening to the first ever Not Boring podcast. Decided to give this a shot today for a couple of reasons. One, uh, today's article uh, is about podcasts, uh, namely about Joe Rogan and the Spotify deal. And two, my essays are really fucking long. So this might be a, a better way for some people to consume what I'm writing. So let's give this a shot. Spotify calls him daddy. On January 24th, 1848, James Marshall found shiny metal in the ground of the lumber mill he was building for John Sutter. He brought the metal to Sutter, Sutter got it tested, and the test confirmed it. They had struck gold. Last week, Joe Rogan struck gold, signing an exclusive deal to bring his podcast to Spotify. The exact terms aren't public, but the consensus seems to be that Spotify will pay Rogan well over $100 million to license the back catalog and future episodes of his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. A quick side note here, I saw a tweet in a video that his friend said that he's making way more money on this deal than people think, so these numbers are going to be big. My corner of the internet blew up with articles, hot takes, and armchair analysis in the deal. But there are three angles that I haven't read yet that I want to explore today. One, podcasting strikes gold. Rogan and Call Her Daddy prove that there's big money in the passion economy. Two, barbelling of media. Media profits will accrue to individuals and aggregators at the expense of the middlemen. Three, Spotify strategy. The Rogan deal is another proof point that Spotify is backward integrating into supply to win podcasts and audio more generally. They're just getting started. Rogan's deal signals that passion economy pursuits like podcasts, newsletters, and online courses, which have fallen somewhere between hobbies and small businesses, can create the kind of eye-popping outcomes typically reserved for athletes, musicians, and tech CEOs. Today, talented individual creators with unique personalities can leverage new tools and social media distribution to build strong brands, cult followings, and large audiences. One person with a microphone is more suited to the modern media landscape than a legacy media business with a cost structure suited to the pre-internet age. Aggregators and individuals are skipping the middlemen and working together to combine reach and niche. Spotify, led by world builder Daniel Ek, understands this shift as well as anybody in the world. Ek is working directly with podcasts' biggest personalities to grow Spotify's non-music listenership and improve his company's margins. Because information is the easiest product to bring online, internet-driven changes impact media first. Understanding what Joe Rogan's deal tells us about media gives you a crystal ball with which to predict the internet's impact on every consumer-facing industry. So section one, the podcast gold rush. Joe Rogan's deal is a major win for creators. On the surface, this deal looks like just the latest in a long line of celebrities and athletes signing contracts worth more than the market caps of some public companies. Actors, musicians, even radio personalities regularly make more than Joe Rogan will through this deal. In 2005, for example, Howard Stern made waves by signing a $500 million five-year deal he also got equity grants worth at least $83 million with Sirius. Michael Jackson inked the largest record contract ever, $250 million, after he died. Every one of the 100 highest paid American athletes has a contract worth more than $100 million. And Floyd Mayweather reportedly earned $275 million for one 25-minute fight against Conor McGregor in 2017. And tech IPOs put all those numbers to shame. Even though Uber's IPO fell far short of expectations, it still created three billionaires, Travis Kalanick, Garrett Camp, and Ryan Graves. In that context, Rogan's deal seems average. But we're talking about podcasts. 
Podcasts are still tiny. Two years ago, people were asking me, you listen to podcasts, right? What's a good podcast to listen to? That's like a 1995 person asking, hey, you use the web, right? What's a good website? The numbers back up my experience. According to A16Z, 65% of podcast listeners began listening in the past three years. Just over half of the country, 51%, has ever listened to a podcast. The entire podcast industry generated $679 million in advertising revenue last year. For comparison, YouTube brought in $15 billion. That's 22 in po entire podcasting industries uh, from ads in 2019. There's a chart here. You'll see it below in the post of 2019 ad revenue for the podcast industry versus YouTube. It's striking to look at. Until last week, podcasts hadn't had their gold rush moment, which brings us back to 19 to 1848. Marshall and Sutter tried to keep their discovery a secret, but gold doesn't stay quiet. Within two years, San Francisco's population increased from 1,000 to 25,000. Over the next seven, 300,000 people would uproot their families, hop on wagons, and head west to stake their claim in the California gold rush. Humans are predictable. We follow the money. Joe Rogan's $100 million plus Spotify deal is like a giant dollar sign bat signal to, to potential podcasters and online individual creators more broadly. It means that podcasting, podcasting can be more than a hobby or a job. Like acting, music, sports, and tech, podcasting is now a viable way to create generational wealth. Another of this week's biggest stories lends credence to the argument that starting a podcast is a financially viable path. On Sunday, Dave Portnoy, the founder and president of Barstool Sports, took over the Call Her Daddy podcast to give his side of the story of the dispute between the Call Her Daddy hosts, Alexander Cooper and Sophia Franklin, and Barstool, which owns the rights to Call Her Daddy. The whole dispute is fascinating, but beyond the scope of this post, in my longer post, I'd link to, to a tweet by Blake Robbins and a post by Taylor Lawrence that give more of the full story. What's important to note for this essay are the money and power dynamics. According to Portnoy, Below is what the fathers, Cooper and Franklin, have earned thus far and what he offered them in a new deal. So first, in the first deal, each co-host was guaranteed $70,000 for three years plus performance bonuses. With those bonuses in the first year, Cooper made $506,000 and Franklin made $461,000. In this whole renegotiation that they're going through right now, Barstool was losing $100,000 for every missed episode, so Portnoy offered the co-host a sweetheart deal. $500,000 guaranteed dollars each, plus performance bonuses, plus 7.5% of merchandise sales, and six months knocked off the original three-year deal. And at the end, the host would walk away with the full rights to the IP. It's a pretty good deal. As of this past Friday night, Franklin walked away. She's doing her own thing. Cooper is staying and running Call Her Daddy on her own. Both will make significantly more money than they did a year ago. For an industry to be appealing to the most talented people, it needs, it needs both a solid base and the chance for a huge upside. These two deals show that the podcast industry at least, and likely the passion economy more broadly, has both. They also show that the balance of power is shifting to individual creators who own direct relationships with customers. There's an idea in startups that to see the future, you should look at what the smartest people are doing on nights and weekends. Recently, many of the smartest people I know have been spending their nights and weekends writing newsletters and recording podcasts. Some have even quit their great jobs to write and record full-time. Rogan and Call Her Daddy will mark a turning point. 
The passionate economy is now a visibly viable path for even the most ambitious people. Section two, barbelling of media. In media, individuals and aggregators are winning, the middle is disappearing. Ben Thompson's aggregation theory describes how platforms, i.e. aggregators, come to dominate the industries in which they compete in a systematic and predictable way. Instead of winning by owning supply, as many of the 20th century's largest companies had, aggregators win by owning demand. And aggregators change the media landscape. Previously, the name of the game was to integrate supply. Radio stations do a bunch of things. They license Spectrum, they build a studio, they hire producers, talent, they pay royalties, and they sell ads in order to get their content on the air. In Spectrum licenses, radio stations, radio stations owned a positionally scarce resource and a captive audience. Delivering supply into that captive audience allowed them to print money through ads. Since Spotify launched in 2006, though, radio stocks have gotten crushed. In the written essay, there's a chart here that shows the S&P going up, NASDAQ going up, and all of the publicly traded radio companies uh, with a negative stock performance from anywhere as bad as 8% all the way down to, I think, negative 84% returns since 2006. The industry is getting killed. But this is correlation, not causation. Spotify did not kill the radio star. The same factors that allowed for the rise of Spotify spelled the downfall of terrestrial radio. Instead of a limited, limited number of local stations, consumers could listen to anything from anywhere at any time. The internet built a bridge over radio companies' supply-driven moats and made their heavy cost structures a liability. Meanwhile, with just an app, record label deals, and recommendation technology, Spotify built up a list listenership of 286 million people. Through its reach and recommendations, Spotify became a kingmaker. Inclusion in one of Spotify's most popular playlists, like Rap Caviar, can make a career. As a result, artists are tailoring their music and their go-to-market strategies to maximize their chances of being included. Spotify, in other words, uses its demand to bend supply to its will. Spotify is the audio aggregator. The aggregator's wake is littered with media companies. Just as Spotify is increasingly taking share from traditional radio broadcasters, Google and Facebook have crushed publishers from local newspapers to BuzzFeed. But while aggregators crush the middlemen, radio stations and newspapers, they actually empower individual creators. Thanks in large part to the aggregators like Twitter, Facebook, Google, and Spotify, individuals now have the tools to build their own media businesses. Ben Thompson tweeted on the 23rd, what a bizarre way to look at things. Social media is the best thing to happen to independent creators. I went from starting a site with less than 400 Twitter followers to being independent in a year, all thanks to social media working for me. Didn't spend a dime. As Lee Jin wrote in her recent piece, Four Implications of Disruption Theory for the Passion Economy, for the passion economy now, a new entrepreneurship, now a new entrepreneurship stack has emerged for online creators. Scaled social networks, democratized distribution, and new platforms make it easier than ever to create and monetize content. On the consumer side, people's information appetites are shifting from bundled media content to curated podcasts, blogs, newsletters, and video content. One person taking on an industry with a lower feature, lower cost product is the ultimate low end disruption. Podcasts are eating radio and newsletters are just starting to eat everything from local newspapers to large online publishers. Individuals, in which I'm including modern personality-first media businesses like Barstool Sports and The Athletic, can use existing infrastructure and strong personalities 
to own niches that are very profitable given their minimal cost structure. From the individual creator's perspective, Substack, Anchor, and a new wave of passion economy startups, the picks and shovels to extend the gold rush analogy, provide modularized tools, and the aggregators provide modularized distribution. All that's left for the creators to do is create and remain authentic. In while Zoom zooms and Slack digs moats, I introduced Hamilton Helmer's seven powers. Individual creators derive their power from one of the seven, brand. Individuals are able to connect with audiences on a deeper, more personal level than companies are. In a summary of seven powers, Florent Carvello wrote a sentence that perfectly encapsulates why Spotify had to pay Joe Rogan. He said, there is a positive feedback loop at play with brands and distribution channels. The more people know your brand, the more they expect to see it on the shelves of their favorite store, giving you more leverage over it. People know and love Joe Rogan, and they expected to see him on Spotify. Aggregators and individual creators need each other and work together at the middleman's expense. As with most things in business, Michael Porter predicted this. In his 1980 book, Competitive Strategy, Porter wrote about the three generic strategies, cost leadership, differentiation, and focus. According to Porter, a company must choose to be either low cost or differentiated and may choose to combine either strategy with a focus on a particular big business segment. Those that pursue neither or a combination of the two strategies were, quote, stuck in the middle. Applying that to the modern media landscape, aggregators went on overall cost leadership, individuals went on differentiation, read brand, and legacy publisher, legacy publishers saddled with high costs and a product bloated with undifferentiated content are stuck in the middle. In media, and I suspect in an increasing number of industries, the profits will accrue to the two ends of the barbell, aggregators and individuals. Section three, Spotify's strategy. So here's a question. If this is an aggregator's world and Spotify is already an aggregator, what is it doing paying Rogan 100 to $200 million in addition to the 480 million they've already paid for the Ringer and Gimlet Media to backward integrate into supply? Last June, in From Linear Businesses to Aggregators and Back, I wrote about this strange phenomenon. Airbnb, Uber, Amazon, Zillow, and Netflix had all achieved the holy grail of internet businesses, aggregator status. But for some reason, each one of them started backward integrating into supply. For example, Zillow buys houses now, and Netflix spends tens of billions of dollars producing its own content. On the surface, becoming more asset-heavy and increasing costs makes little sense. But I pointed to three reasons that they would do it. Data advantages, superior customer experience, and better economics. Since that piece, Spotify has joined the backward integrated aggregators for the three reasons I wrote about then. One, data advantages. Spotify has more targeted listener data than anyone else, and they have designs on using that data to do to podcasting what Google and Facebook have done to the web, building that layer on top of it. Two, superior customer experience. Before this deal, Spotify listeners could not listen to Joe Rogan on Spotify. Now they can. Whether it's good for podcast listeners generally is beyond the scope of this post. Check out Nathan Bashaw's post, The Open Podcast Ecosystem is Dying, Here's How to Save It. Three, better economics. This is the key to understanding the deal. Even though Spotify is an audio aggregator, its margins suffer because its suppliers, the music labels, have power over them. Three labels own the vast majority of the rights to the valuable back catalog of all the music that people want to listen to. 
So Spotify had to pay those labels 70% of its revenues, locking in low margins. As I wrote about in Earshare, The Idiot's Guide to Investing in Spotify, podcasts are an upfront investment in a business line that will generate higher margins over the long run. Over time, once they've renegotiated contracts with the labels, the more revenue they generate from podcasts, the more revenue they get to keep. Now it's a little bit of brag time. In Earshare, I argued that pieces of good news about podcasts would break the bearish narrative around Spotify and send the stock higher. Since that article, which came out on, I believe, March 23rd, Spotify is up 40% versus only 8% for the NASDAQ and flat for the S&P 500. Over half of that gain came after Joe Rogan tweeted about the deal this past Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. The market loves Spotify's strategy, and it has rewarded it with an additional $4 billion in market cap. And no wonder, instead of requiring a full media business with a ton of employees and overhead and a capital structure that would likely have increased the price of the deal to make investors happy, Spotify was able to acquire a big listenership by partnering directly with one dude. In that light, the company's $750 million podcast shopping spree seems like a steal. Section four, what does it all mean? So for Joe Rogan, what does it mean? People have questioned whether or not this is a good deal for Joe. That's hogwash. First, we don't know the terms of the deal yet, so it's pretty hard to say it was a bad deal. All indications are that it's at least a $100 million payday. He will, number two, he will still be able to generate ad revenue. Three, he gets access to Spotify's audience of 286 million and growing listeners. As Bashaw pointed out, Rogan's large and casual audience might be hard to monetize through subscriptions. Five, along with the Ringer and Gimlet shows, Rogan's podcast would be first and best customer for Spotify streaming ad insertion product. Generating Boku bucks for Rogan will serve as proof for the podcast it recruits to its ad network. And lastly, given how crucial podcasts are to its future, I wouldn't be surprised if Spotify put equity bonuses in Rogan's deal to align their interests in establishing podcasts as a core piece of the business, like Sirius did for Stern. I'm bullish on the company, and the equity might end up being the most valuable part of the deal for Joe Rogan. For Joe Rogan, this deal is a massive win. He's getting even richer, and he's serving as a model for millions of individual creators. What about for Spotify? Daniel Ek, Spotify CEO, is a world builder. He's been plotting his company's course to audio domination for over a decade, making short-term painful investments to put Spotify in a strong position long-term. AirPods have ushered in the audio era, and Spotify is moving aggressively to own podcasting in order to improve its, mar- improve its margin profile and become the one-stop shop for audio. Signing the biggest podcaster to an exclusive deal is both a smart customer acquisition move and an announcement that Spotify is playing to win. I remain incredibly bullish on Spotify, and I don't think they're done making acquisitions in the non-label-owned audio space. Three potential targets? Clubhouse, the audio chat room that just raised $12 million at a $100 million valuation from A16Z and keeps people engaged for hours a day. Second target, Epidemic Sound, its fellow Swede whose goal is to soundtrack the world through owned royalty-free licensing. Epidemic produces and owns the rights to the kind of music that make up playlists like Chill Vibes and Deep Sleep that could chew up listening hours without causing royalty payments to labels. Three, Sonos, the high-end speaker maker, which Brett Bivens and Sid Jaa argue would give Spotify material ownership of its distribution. Spotify is just getting started, building its audio-first world. Finally, what does it mean for you? It means that the gold rush is on. There has never been a better time to be an individual creator. Launch a podcast, write a newsletter, teach an online course, build a small e-commerce brand. If you're reading this from a computer or a phone, 
you have the tools you need to create. With your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram account, you have a world of customers within reach. In Shepherd's Gale, I wrote, COVID has shown many people the importance of having a skill that they can monetize directly with their followers and audiences. I suspect that we will see a proliferation of one or two person creative businesses like newsletters, podcasts, courses, design, and coaching. We will also see these business models evolve. Individuals now are more than just viable businesses. The individual creator, in symbiosis with aggregators and picks and shovel makers, is best positioned to earn a significant amount of media industry profits. Get writing and recording. All right, that was the essay. Thanks so much for listening. Give me feedback. Let me know if you hate the sound of my voice as much as I do. And I'll see you soon.